Last week, we started uh, exploring the discussion between God and Moses that happens in Exodus chapter 3. And I knew going into that sermon that I had too much to talk about. So sure enough, we cut it off about halfway through. So this morning, we are picking it up back at that halfway point in the middle of this story. So here are some things that we need to remember so that we can try to pick up this conversation approximately from where we left off last week. Number one, background information. The Hebrews did not have a firm identity as a people. We tend to think of them when we read these stories as the fully formed people of God, but that is not who they were. They were an enslaved people without a true home who had spent generations in Egypt, seemingly without any direct intervention from God. Number two, the Hebrews did not know, therefore, as much about God as we think they did. Uh, even before they were in Egypt, there were not any guidelines for how to be the people of God. Uh, the Ten Commandments had not yet been given. They didn't have any festivals or ceremonies. The best that they have in terms of worshiping God were these sacred spots that were sort of scattered throughout the land, places that Abraham or Jacob, where they had encountered God. Number three, Moses himself was a man without an identity. He was simultaneously Egyptian, Hebrew, slave, royalty, murderer, fugitive, protector, husband, father, and shepherd. He could not go back home to Egypt because Pharaoh would kill him. He could also not go back home to his enslaved people because ultimately they had rejected him for growing up in this uh, royal environment while they were slaves. He was so confused about who he was, he named his son Foreigner in a Foreign Land. Which, by the way, a couple weeks ago, Justin came up to me and assured me that they would come up with a very biblical name for their child. <laughs> I suggested burden, but you know, I didn't want the child to have too much baggage growing up. Uh, Kelly, it's just a joke. Don't worry about it. How about blessed burden? Blessed burden. We'll go with that. Um, so Moses was in this point where he was empty, which was a good thing because God was about to give him all of uh, the filling that he could handle. So when we pick up the story of Moses at the, what is it called? What he's seeing? He's seeing something that's on fire, but what is it? It's not a burning bush. I have to go over this again, but I did change the name so it's easier to see. It's the unburning fiery bush. Okay? So it's the, it's the unburning firing bush. In, because, again, it's on fire, but what is it not doing? So we can't call it a burning bush. All right? I'm probably going to say burning bush anyway throughout the sermon, but you know what I mean. Um, so this is his first major introduction to God, his first encounter with God, and it's a discussion between a confused man and the God that he had heard about but did not necessarily know. Therefore, this is very much an introductory conversation. This is who I am. Well, this is who I am. This is what I want you to do. Well, I'm not sure I can do that. And it goes back and forth between God and Moses as God is wanting Moses to take on this very important task. So phase one 
as we saw uh, last week, was that God needed to get the attention of Moses. That he had to start out with this attention grabber. So Moses was out with the flocks, uh, and he saw this bush that though it was on fire, it wasn't burning. So he decided to go check it out. And we see through the first part of the encounter that God wanted to take things easy with Moses. He didn't want to just overwhelm him right away so that Moses couldn't understand what was going on. So God knew that this was a big deal, and he wanted to ease Moses into this, and he wanted Moses to know him, so he came in and, and showed himself to Moses in a way that was unusual, i.e., it didn't make sense. There was some sort of power in front of him, but it wasn't like thunder and lightning and the earth opening up and, I am God, right? It's none of, it's none of that. Instead, it's a lot more subtle, where Moses himself even sees it, and it's like, Whoa, what is that? And just walks up and approaches it. Number two, phase two of the story is where God introduces himself by saying, Hello, I am God. God made two uh, very important declarations in his introduction. Number one, he said, The site that you are standing on next to this unburning fiery bush is holy. And the reason why it's holy is because I am here. Therefore, Moses learns in this brief interaction that wherever God is, that place is a special and holy place. And secondly, he declares that he is not just any God, i.e. he's not the God of Mount Sinai or he's not the God of this burning bush, that he is the God of Moses' ancestors, the God of Moses or the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. And Moses certainly uh, knew something about this God and knew how God had made promises to his ancestors and, and maybe even knew about some of the places where God had interacted with them. But we have to remember again that even though he might have known those stories, he still did not really know what this God is about. In phase three, God gets right down to business. All right, I've introduced myself. Here is what I need. And God told Moses this. He says, I have seen the misery of my people, and I want to rescue them from their suffering. So, Moses, in order to do this, I need you to go back to Pharaoh, command him to let my people go, and then lead more than 600,000 people out of Egypt into the wilderness to the place that I am given to you. What would you say to that particular ask? It's, it's a big one. And this ask would be a lot for, him, for anyone because as much as God has tried to bring Moses along slowly in this interaction, ultimately what God wants is, is, is enormous. It, it is so very much. But it was especially challenging for Moses because, again, he can't go back and these people don't like him. And how is he supposed to lead all these people when one side wants to kill him and the other side doesn't like him? Which leads us to phase four, which we covered a little bit last week, but we're going to cover it again today to give us a little bit of a running start into the rest of the conversation. So from Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Phase four is, as just popped up, I can't do this. 
which is Moses' response to these requests. So in verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, the first thing we need to appreciate about this response, so keep in mind, God has introduced himself, uh, he said who he is, he's given Moses sort of the layout of what this task is. We need to understand that Moses' objection in these verses is a thousand percent valid. Who am I to go do this thing? And we know enough about him now, having looked at his life and everything that's happened, to know that he's right. He is not worthy, nor is he equipped to perform this task. Let me ask you this question. When was Moses in his life to this point a leader of people? Never, as far as we know. Do we have any indication that Moses has excellent people skills and communication skills? No. Do we have any indication that Moses has a great deal of confidence about who he is? No. So Moses' observation about himself is correct. He is not worthy or equipped. But God says, I will be with you. He gives him this promise. But the big thing we have to keep in mind is that Moses does not yet know this God in a way that would enable him to say, oh, you're with me? Awesome, let's go do it. Because he does not yet know if God is capable of giving him everything he needs to perform this task. In fact, what does he know about God? That God is a giver of promises and that God can make bushes catch fire and not burn. Is that enough for him to go back into this situation where we'd put himself at risk? We have to remember he doesn't have the law. He hasn't seen the plagues. He hasn't seen God do any of these big things. He doesn't know yet that he can trust God. And God, on the flip side of that coin, has presented this very, look, take my word for it. It's going to be great. I'll be with you the whole time. God's response meant to encourage Moses here in this verse is a little bit confusing. He says, a sign to you that this will all be okay is that one day you will worship with the people on this mountain. It's very much, uh, what if my parachute doesn't open? Well, jump. And when you're on the ground, you'll know it opens. Question. I can still be on the ground without it having opened. I'm not sure how that's supposed to make me feel better. This is kind of like saying all of your fears will be relieved and you will have total confidence when this is all over. Does this help him in the moment? No. But in the middle of there, what did God say? Again, he says, I will be with you. You will not be alone, nor is it about your capabilities. 
Moses says, I can't do this. Who am I? And God says, I will be with you. Now, again, Moses can't yet appreciate exactly what that means. And I gave this example last week. Based on his understanding of God or gods, having grown up in Egypt, did he think that he had to dig up the unburning fiery bush and take it with him? Because he's worshipped these images or seen people worship these images for all this time. And this is the first time he's seen some sort of representation of God in this way. I mean, it's possible. I'm not saying this is what happened, but we have to understand that his understanding at that point was not enough to know what God being with him really even means. But we know what that means. We know that the presence of God makes all the difference. So the next thing that God did is really extraordinary. It's not so extraordinary to us, but we'll get to that in a second. So phase five, God says, let me give you my name. This is who I am, and this is what you can tell people about me. Picking up in verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. All right. Why is this moment so extraordinary? It's extraordinary because in this interaction, God gave Moses his proper name. So, for example, let's just say people who have met you call you or call me, let's just do it that way because it's easier, Mr. Smith right? Or Pastor Smith, or your highest reverend. Whatever it is that makes sense in the moment, they call me this name. And I say, no, 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 you don't have to call me that. Just call me Bryce. That's my name. Now, in a sense, that's what God is doing. He's giving Moses his proper name. This is who I am. This is what I am to be called. Now, does Moses, prior to this, have a name for God? No. And this is what's interesting. All he really has for God up to this point is a descriptor of what God has done. I am the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The giver of the covenant. But he does not have any words or name that actually describe who he is. They just describe these moments that happened, again, generations ago. He knows him as the God of his ancestors. So, you know, on a very practical level, giving his name is a good thing. But that is not what makes this moment so special. First, it's important for us to understand that there are a lot of names for God. Within the Bible, within Scripture, there are a lot of different names for God, and a lot of times they are 
um, situation-specific, i.e., the God who saves or the God who provides. And, and maybe just off the top of the head, off the top of your head, you can think of different names for God, words like Jehovah. Those kind of words, you know, they stick out to us, or the Lord, or God Almighty, right? We have all these words that, to a degree, what they do is they describe something about God. Moses was not asking him in this moment, like, what should I call you? Instead, and this is clear based on God's response, Moses is asking them, who am I to tell you, who am I to tell them you are? more than just the God of our ancestors. Who are you? What are you like? What have you done? And God replies in this with a couple of important points. Number one, that he is God eternal. I am. Which is such a difficult to, those are two difficult words put together to, to start to wrap your mind around what that means. Does it mean that God simply exists? Well, yes, but it also means more than that. Does it mean that God has been present throughout time? Yes, but it means more than that. And, and that's one of the beauties of these things. If, so think about these two things together, okay? If we have names that describe what God has done, what this name says is I am, which by its very nature, to a degree, is undefinable. In those three letters, we find a really big name. A really big name that we could attach all sorts of words to, which help us to understand a little bit of the unknowable about God. But the message is simple I am. Secondly, he gives, us, gives uh, Moses the same perspective that he is the God of his Hebrew ancestors, that he has seen their affliction and will redeem his people from bondage. And all of that is caught up in this name. All these things that are going to happen, all the things that have happened, the things that Moses will come to understand about God that he does not know yet is wrapped up in this name, I am who I am, or just I am. This is the most important of God's names in the Bible, this name in particular. And uh, it's a four-letter name represented by these letters on the top there, YHVH. That's how uh, the name appears in Hebrew Scripture. Now, um, not all the letters are there to help people say it out loud. This would be, though, the word that we would say, Yahweh. That is this name that he gives Moses there on the mountain. It is often referred to within Judaism as the ineffable name, the unutterable name, or the distinctive name. There is no name like it, and there is something, as I said, unknown and mysterious about it. Um, Logistically, it's related to another Hebrew root, which is to be, and reflects the fact that God's existence is eternal. Now, here's some things 
that are not necessarily relevant to the Moses story, but I think are relevant in helping us understand how important this name actually is. Uh, Number one, there are beliefs and ideas about speaking this name. Um, So I'll just, you know, full disclosure, I don't like to say Yahweh. Uh, And this might explain to you why I don't like to say that word. Officially, there is not any sort of rule against saying this name uh, within Judaism. However, uh, so they had, they had Hebrew scripture, they had a commentary on Hebrew scripture, and they had a commentary on that commentary, and that second commentary is called the Talmud. So basically, throughout this time, you have the law, you have the Mishnah, you have the Talmud. Law, commentary, commentary on commentary. So by the time we get here to this third place, Um, it was the custom to use substitute names for God, and some teachers asserted that a person who pronounced this name according to its letters, instead of using a substitute, had no place in the world to come and should be put to death. It's true. hear, Hear me out here, all right? Hear me out. So instead of pronouncing that name, they would substitute the name with something like Adonai or some other name of God. Um, and although the prohibition only, uh, you know, pertains to this four-letter name, uh, Jews customarily do not pronounce any of God's many names except in prayer or in study. And the usual practice is to substitute letters or symbols so that even the names they would use, like Adonai or like Jehovah, would become something else so that they're not simply saying the name out loud. It's an interesting concept, Right? And, and so today, if you're asking, do people do this today? Well, Orthodox Jews probably do. Um, and, and some of the other groupings, they, they, they might not do so. Now, here's something even crazier. When the temple was destroyed uh, the first time, uh, and the, with the prohibition on saying the name of God, people forgot how to say it at all. So, the pronunciation of this name fell out of practice. And though rabbis had passed down the pronunciation, too much time went, or passed, between when they knew how to say it and when they had forgotten. So, even the name Yahweh um, is not necessarily how you would say this name or how it would have been said originally to them. That's basically later scholars' interpretation of how it would sound. And you might notice there's only four letters. So the other letters that we have in the word Yahweh were put there by other people to try to make sense of the word. We're not going to get into the Hebrew language and why that is. Just take my word for it at this point. You guys with me? Okay. Number two, there were also restrictions on writing the name of God. So if the name of God were written in a permanent form, it was illegal for them, for scribes and others, to erase that name or to, um, or to leave it in a space where it could be altered or changed or something being done to it in any way. And so therefore, it was a very big deal 
when people wrote the name of God. And it even extends into this day. Um, so get this. The prohibition against erasing or defacing names of God applies only to names that are written in some kind of permanent form, and recent rabbinical decisions have held that writing on a computer is not a permanent form. Thus, it is not a violation to type God's name into a computer and then backspace over it or cut it and paste it or copy and delete files with God's name in them. However, however, once you print the document out, it becomes a permanent form. This is why observant Jews avoid writing a name of God on websites, newsgroup messages, because there is a risk that someone will print it out and deface it. And normally, and you may have even seen this, again, Orthodox Jews will avoid writing the name of God altogether by writing G-D, which is their way of, of giving a sort of offhand referral to what it is they're talking about, without necessarily writing the name down. Okay. It seems like a lot to us, doesn't it? And I've heard Christians over time say, I'm so glad that we're free in Christ so that we don't have to do that. Or I'm so glad that we're no longer under these laws and restrictions. I'm so glad we have a personal relationship with God so that we don't have to keep that distance. All good things. But that's also an exercise in missing the point a little bit. The point is not that you have to jump through hoops in order to speak of or write about God. The point is there is an element of God and his name, why, you know, the, the Yahweh name. That name is so special and so significant that you do not, do not speak it or write it without consideration. In fact, you may not speak it or write it without praying about it first before you apply his name to something. Now, think about our world right now and think about how many issues, opinions, conflicts, disagreements people attach the name of God to. We could stand to appreciate the name of God quite a bit more than we do. This is not about saying, oh my God. But it is about saying God hates certain people. It is about saying that God doesn't like people who make this decision. It is about saying God doesn't love someone who has made this mistake or that mistake. We attach God to some things we shouldn't. And we could stand to respect him a little bit more. Right? So this is a big deal. Now Moses has the name of God, but he doesn't appreciate how big of a deal this is. In fact, he doesn't know that he's the first person and only person to receive this name from God. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know that he has this insight into who God is. Which leads us to phase six. God still needed to let Moses know what it would be like for Moses to do this task with the power of God. He said, I'll be with you. He said, it's going to be okay. Now Moses needs, or, or Moses needs to know what God is going to do to actually make this happen. So phase six is, I will go before you. 
I will go before you. He's already said this, but now he needs to describe what it's like. So let's look at verses 16 through 22. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably, favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and I'm sorry, every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. All right. This is a bit of an interesting description here. There are some things we need to note. Number one, the promised land has changed since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The land of Canaan was not as inhabited when Joseph moved his family to Egypt as it was during the time of Moses. But the covenant promise is that the people of God will have that now inhabited land. So even though all these people are here, which is another complete problem in and of itself, you are still going to have this place. And he wants Moses to know that what this is about is keeping his promises to his people. I have said this is going to happen. This is still going to happen. Now, about Egypt. I understand this is a big problem. But here's what's going to happen. Although God had been quiet for a long time, he had seen what had transpired. And the one thing that becomes clear throughout this is he will not stand for Egypt's rebellion or pride. In fact, he is going to break that down in them. He's seen what's transpired, and he knows that just Moses and the elders going to Pharaoh is not going to be enough. After all, even though God is with them, they are still slaves, and Pharaoh is still Pharaoh. So, God will strike the Egyptians, interestingly enough, he says, with what? Signs and wonders, which we call later plagues. <laughs> This is really dressing something up into what it's not, right? It's lipstick on a pig. <clears throat> but yeah, we understand these things to be plagues. And then in a little bit, you know, if the signs and wonders are the knife, the second part is twisting the knife. Not only will, we, will I convince them to let you go, but when you're leaving, go ask them for their valuables. 
and they will give you their valuables. And you will have so many of their valuables, your children will wear them. That's how much. And in doing so, by taking this from them, you will do what to Egypt? Plunder them. You will take their wealth along with you. So we cannot overlook that a part of what is happening here with God is that he wants to get back at the Egyptians for what they have done to his people. So Moses is to go back to meet with the elders. He now knows where to go, and he's going to give them good news. And all Moses has to do is to convince them. But God is not sending him empty-handed. He will go before them. So, based on our understanding at this point, should this be enough for Moses to go? I'm, I'm glad that you're being more conservative with your answers because it means you're taking his situation seriously, which we need to. We have to remember that God, again, is asking Moses to trust him without Moses knowing if he can trust him. Moses doesn't yet have a good reason to do so other than the fact that he's talking to a miraculous bush. So he's going to need a little bit more uh, convincing. So let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 4, a section that I like to call party tricks. Picking up in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. So God runs him through all this stuff. Then he says, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said, Well, let's stop there for a second. Moses is applying in this question his own thinking about his relationship between him and God to the relationship between him and the people of God. God, you're asking me to trust you, that you'll do all these things, but what if I go back and they don't trust me? What do we do with that? Because this seems to be a real problem, which, however we've looked at this before, we need to appreciate the fact that Moses' questions are very practical. And well reasoned. <clears throat> so, verse 2 Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it to the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back to a staff in his hand. Okay, this is a really important moment because when the staff turns into the snake, what does Moses do? He runs. Why? Because snakes are terrifying. That's why. And don't give me the stuff, oh, I like snakes, they're so cute, like they give you a hug. Yeah, it's because they want to kill you. That's why they hug you, all right? So he runs from the snake. And what, is, what does God tell him to do? Pick it up by the tail. So in this moment, with this one thing that he's terrified of doing, God says, go grab it. And what does Moses do? He grabs it by the tail, which means in this one interaction, what's happening? He's learning that God is not playing some sort of trick on him. And he takes a step toward overcoming his own fear of this thing in this moment, and he grabs it by the tail, and it turns back into a staff. Verse 5. This, said the Lord, is so that they may, be, may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now, we know, because we know the rest of the story, that this isn't enough. 
Because what happens with Pharaoh's magicians? They do the same thing. Okay? Verse 6. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand in his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. <laughs> We're going to come back to that in a second. But now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, these signs are important to Moses and not just his future audience. Why? Because through these signs, Moses begins to understand the power of God and how he can trust God. These three things were things that Moses could not do in his own. And can you imagine for a second getting back to the whole leprosy thing? How panicked he had to have been when he pulled his hand out and it was leprous? Like, I, I don't know what to compare it to. It would be like, you know, hey, put this coat on. Hey, there's a massive bullet hole in your chest. <laughs> it's a death sentence is what it is. He will die from this thing. And I bet when God said, put it back in your cloak, that Moses had his hand back inside that cloak before God finished the sentence. Right? This is something that needs to happen. Because while he hoped that God would heal it, remember, he didn't know God was going to make him leprous in the first place. And this is different than turning a staff into a snake. So God showed him a taste of his power, and he funneled his power through Moses, and this was meant to give Moses confidence. And lastly, you know, if this doesn't work, pull some water out of the Nile, it'll turn into blood. Now, we need to notice the progression of these signs, from snake to leprosy to turning water into blood. There is a progression from, whoa, that's crazy, to there is no way that just happened. Transforming something static into an animal healing a dying hand, and turning the Nile into blood. And think about the distance that this covers. Power over items, power over the body, and power over nature. And these three simple things, what has God shown Moses he can do? Anything. That he can do anything. Is this enough for Moses? No. And we need to ask why. We need to ask why. Let's pick it up in verses 10 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? To which I imagine Moses saying, um, I don't know, you? <laughs> Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight? Or makes them blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Now here's what I want to ask you just for a moment Is Moses being obstinate or stubborn? It's interesting, right? It's an interesting question. Is he being one of those things? Is he just being like, I'm not sure he is being obstinate or stubborn. 
Because at this point, the thing we need to understand is that it's not necessarily that Moses doesn't believe in God anymore. What does he not believe in? Himself. We get to this point, and it's not about God or what God is going to do. It's about whether Moses believes he can do it even with the power of God. And what does he think? I am, I'm not your guy. I can't do this. Verse 14, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hands so you can perform the signs with it. We simply cannot overstate the amount of faith it takes for Moses to follow this plan. And ironically for me, what is the last hurdle he has to overcome? It's public speaking. Right? Right? It's public speaking. I, I, I can't do this. My, Zeke recently had to present a poem to older students um, for his English class. And when it came time to present the poem, he went to print it out or bring it up on his Chromebook and it wouldn't come up. But it was time to, to present it, so he had to present something from memory that he had not memorized. So he got through the first part of the, the, the poem and he got to the end and he couldn't remember how it ended. So he had to make up or ad-lib the ending on the spot, which apparently he did a great job with. Uh, Zeke was scared and nervous for at least 18 hours before that happened and was almost physically ill by the time it was done. Why? Because he does not like to talk in front of people. So I get it to some degree that this is Moses' last thing. Not only does he feel unqualified as a person, but he knows he knows he's not capable of doing the most basic function, which is going to people, giving them a message, and telling them what to do. So God promises, I will, I will speak and teach you what to say. And when Moses says, God, please send someone else, this is a cry of desperation. It's that point. And maybe you know that point. Where you don't see a way forward except to trust God, but the idea of trusting God with what you know you need to is so terrifying. And, and you're not sure that when you take that first step, where is that foot even going to land? Have you ever had that experience? This is where Moses is, the man without an identity, the man who doesn't know what to do. And God asserted himself first by assuring that he could handle this problem. I made mouths. I think I can handle this. But ultimately what he needs is for Moses to step out in faith. He, know, he needs Moses to trust him. And he's promising Moses that if you trust me, I will do all of these things that I have promised you and so much more. And when will Moses know this is true? When he's come back to this place. 
and he worships, he worships God with his people. Then he will know that his faith was not misplaced. You know, sometimes we speak about having faith in God as if it were just a simple thing. Oh, you're depressed or anxious? Have more faith in God. Have you tried praying? Oh, you don't know what to do? Have more faith in God. Oh, you're trying to make a huge decision and you don't know which way to go and you're losing sleep over it? Have more faith in God. The thing that those statements ignore is that faith by its very nature requires us, requires us to move into what we cannot be sure of and do not definitively know. Which reminds us that this idea of trusting in God is an enormously broad principle. Because what does it apply to? Trusting in God. What does it apply to? Everything. And how is it going to work out, this trusting in God? It's going to work out great, but not necessarily in the way you want it to. Awesome. Am I going to know, when am I going to know what it is that I should do? Not until you do it. Well, what if it's the wrong thing? Well, God will show you. It's like asking someone to get behind a car with a blindfold on and to put their foot down on the gas. Is that scary? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, some of us are bad enough drivers with our eyes open <laughs> and all of our senses. It's a terrifying thing. So here's what we need to remember. Number one, God doesn't ask us to go alone. And that's important. And look, we may not have insight, realistically, honestly, not. we may not have insight into what that means until we do it. But there's a really great promise hidden in there, which is when it happens, you'll know. When it happens, you'll know. You don't have to go alone. Number two, God is going to give you what you need. Is it for your purposes? No. But it's for his. And that's not bad news for you. That's actually good news. Because if God gave you everything you needed for your purposes, the world would be even more of a disaster than it is right now. That's a fact. If God gave each of us all we need for our desires, imagine, <laughs> imagine how awful that would be. It would be pretty bad. Therefore, this promise that it's going to go towards God's work is actually, it's, it's a really good thing. Because part of trusting that God will actually make something happen is also trusting that God knows what that thing should be for your benefit for the benefit of the kingdom. But none of it happens if we sit in this comfortable space that we've built for ourselves where we have not yet stepped out in faith 
and where we can still control all the things around us. That's the spot that's the hardest to leave, you see, where the unknown is still out in front of us and we're not living inside of it. But Moses doesn't become Moses until he moves. Moses doesn't become Moses until he goes to Egypt and speaks to his people and confronts Pharaoh and uses all of these things that God gives him without ever knowing what they were and without understanding how they work. We act sometimes like faith is about what we know and what we're confident in. What we know is God and what we're confident in is God. Everything else is a bit of a mystery. And that is the way that life is. Well, how can we live life that way? We can live it that way because Moses delivers the people of God from the king of the earth and takes them to the place that God had prepared for them. That's why we can believe in that. We can believe in that because God sent Jesus here for us because we are incapable. And to overcome all of our fears, our worries, our sin, the death that comes with us, that we might have a life we would never have on our own. We have a lot to be confident in. But it doesn't make it less scary. And that's okay. Because that's how life is. And that's what faith is about. And the challenge for us is not necessarily to go to Egypt. But the challenge for us is not to sink into this life we have created for ourselves. And instead imagine that God has something more for us if we would trust him to lead us to that thing. But it's not going to happen until we take that first step. So I would encourage you, and I wish I could give you more direction or help with this, I would encourage you to begin praying that God would put on your heart what the next step for you might be. And this sounds backwards, but I pray that it's terrifying and that it makes you uncomfortable. I pray that you don't know what to do with it. How could God want me to do this? And I pray that through that you understand that God is a keeper of his promises. And that God will be with you, no matter what it is that you're going into. And that he will give you what you need. If you will give up your own need to control and let him take you where he wants you to be. Easy, right? <laughs>